with uh, uh, with the NIV or with the NLT. Like if you're just reading, that's fine. But like the message version, um, these versions, uh, some of them are, are more phrase by phrase and others are just paraphrase translations. Like for example, the message version is a paraphrase translation. So it's, a, it's an easier read and sometimes you can capture more uh, from the heart and the message of that 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 portion of scripture, um, you may be able to capture more uh, because it's again it's it's more aligned to our cultural context, so it's a little bit easier for for you to understand. And so a lot of people like that, but I would I would avoid doing I would I wouldn't do Bible study for example with the Message version. Um, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be good at all. Um, so when people start dissecting scripture and start breaking it down, um, uh, yeah, the passion. So I'll say this, Asia. Yeah, the passion translation is another one where um, it, I think the problem is is I think people criticize certain translate. So let's put it all out there right now. There's no such thing as a perfect translation of the Bible. Okay, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. And I'll say something a little bit more provocative. There's, there isn't a better translation, if that makes sense. Um, there isn't a better translation. Like one translation is better than the other. No, um, trans, a translation is a translation. However, it's what you're applying it to, right? Um, and it's what it's intended for. For example, if you if you have a if you want to translate something word for word, there are other literal word for word translations. But because we don't have cultural context to it, it you know, those of us today, we, we wouldn't be able to understand it. Um, if you're multilingual, you would get that. There are actually things you say in one language that you, if you translated those things you said in one language, word for word, in another language, people would be like, I don't even know what you're saying. It, it doesn't. It doesn't even make sense because, again, there's something lost, right, from language to language. So, um, so certain trans that, that's why it's good to read different translations. Even when you're studying scripture, it's good for you to read multiple translations because, again, you know, each one looks at it from a different angle. And so, so when somebody says one translation is better than the other, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that, right? Like, let's say you, for example, uh, this is a side note, and then we'll do some, we'll do some reading. Side note: I know this is in Bible study. I should save this for Patreon, right? Uh, maybe we could do a Bible study on that as well on Patreon. But um, let's say, for example, you take the French language, right? And let's say you translate from French to English, right? You can translate from French to English, but if you're translating from French to English in, for example, the UK, it's going to be a different translation than if you translate it from French to English in the United States. I'll take it even further. There's a way you would translate it, let's say, to the Deep South that would sound different in translation than a translation in, let's say, Upper New York. You understand? And so who, which one's a better translation? There's no better translation. Um, one works better for one context and one works better for another context. So that's all to say, you know, we, we, I get, I, I, I tell, I tend to tell people, be careful with, um, uh, be careful with those arguments or engaging in arguments about which translation of scripture is better than another translation. The reality is, is that the best translation is the original. <laughs> okay. Anything after that is a dilution is, is, is a diluted version of the original translation. Okay. There's, there's something, there's always going to be something lost. And so you try to capture as much of it as you can. So all to say this is that if you are going to engage in Bible study, there are certain translations you don't use for others. Like, for example, Asia, uh, the, the Passion Translation. Um, people say, well, that's a horrible translation. It's a bad translation for many reasons. And I say to them, yes, if you're doing Bible study, then that's not the best translation, <laughs> okay, for what you're using it for. However, um, so and that's why an NKJV or NASB, right? That's why those versions are better. Um, the Septuagint. Well, I mean, the Septuagint is, I'll take one more question, but, but yeah, so, so the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. 
And that tells you a little bit there, right? That there's, so when you, when you translate from Hebrew to Greek, there's something lost there. And then there are many English translations that translate the Old Testament from the Septuagint. And so translating the Aramaic and the Hebrew to Greek, and then from Greek to then English, something is lost there. Okay? Something is lost there as well. So I am not saying that any translation is a bad translation. I actually do not believe, I won't say I don't believe there's a bad translation. There are some translations which I feel a certain way about. Um, but in general, the argument about which translation is better than another is a futile argument. There, there, there's no such thing as a better translation. That's all I'm saying. Um, it depends on what you're using it for. So anyway, but we're reading from the NKJV. That's just the one I am most familiar with, the one I'm most comfortable with. But there are times that I'll even preach and read from the NIV. Rarely do I do that, but sometimes I do that just to make sure that people will capture the essence of what that scripture is speaking into. Um, I'll sometimes read from the NLT. NLT is a really good starter translation, I think, for those who may find the KJV or the NKJV cumbersome or the NASB cumbersome. So anyway, um, but let's get right to it, family. We're going to get started with the reading of scripture today. For those of you who are here for the first time, as you know, um, it is our daily discipline to spend time in the reading of scripture. Um, we read for about 20, 30 minutes a day, and then we reflect for another 20 to 30 minutes for the sake of journeying through the entire scripture. Um, we're going through the entire Old Testament. We started from Genesis, and now we are in Nehemiah. And for those of you who've been journeying with us, man, oh man, we've gone through a lot of Bible. And notice what just 20 minutes does a day. Notice what 20, 30 minutes does a day. Now, some of you hang around for the other 30 minutes where I rant, but I ask you just to come and engage in the reading of the word because I want for the Lord to speak to you directly. And so we're posturing ourselves, not in the posture of the study, the Bible study, which is why I give you guys some wiggle room about which translations you read, but more to engage with God and the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and that you would engage with God from a meditational perspective to allow the scripture to discern you, to exegete you. Anybody understand that? And so I, I, I would encourage you each and every one of you, to just prayerfully consider these three questions. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? God, what are you revealing concerning people? God, what are you revealing concerning me? And then we just engage. We engage in the word, and that's what we're going to do today. And so let's go to Nehemiah chapter 5. Father, I ask that you would speak to us today. Lord, I ask that you would reveal your grace, your mercy, your will, your heart, your mission, your plan. Father, I pray that you would expose in us, um, Lord, what needs exposition. Father, I pray that you would um, reveal to us where uh, we need revelation. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement and um, inspire us where we need inspiration. Father, let this moment and this time, this short time that we spend together, let it be fruitful and be glorified in all of it. Let it not be our wisdom, but let it be your spirit speaking to us and through us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse one, let's get right to it. It says this, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is at the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them for other men have our lands and vineyards. 
and I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting ushery from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this ushery. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their households, also a hundredth of the money of the grain, the new wine, and the oil, so that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it, and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now, that which we have prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also, fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days in abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of all this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now it happened when Senbalat, Tobiah, Jeshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that we had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it though at the time I had not hung the doors in the gates, that Senbalad and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down with you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. And I said to him, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Hmm. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of <coughs> Deliah, the son of Mehetaleb, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who will go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. 
but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason, he was hired, that, he sh that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobias and Balat according to these words, and the prophetess Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So the wall was finished, and on the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days, and it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, and they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to him. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Johanah. And Johanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Then it was when the wall was built and I hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And when they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors, and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at watch station, and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, and the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return. And I found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvai, Nehum and Baana, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Sephathiah, 372, the sons of Era, 652, the sons of Pahath Moab, the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benui, 648, the sons of Babai, 628, the sons of Asgad, 2,322, the sons of Adunakem, 667, the sons of Bagvai, 2,067, the sons of Adin, 655, the sons of Atur of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Bazai, 324, the sons of Harif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem, and Netopha, 188, the men of Ananath, 128, the men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, the men of Kerjath Jerim, Shephriah, and Beeroth, 743, the men of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Mikmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 100, or Ai, 123, the men of Nebo, 52, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Arim, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, the sons of Sanaa, 3,930, the priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, of Kadmiel, the sons of Hodavah, 
74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talum, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hitata, the sons of Shobai, 138. The Nethanim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hesufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keroth, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Salmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Raya, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Jazem, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pesea, the sons of Basai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Mephesheshem, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hekufa, the sons of Harur, the sons of Baslith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Nezia, the sons of Hitipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Sephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pochereth, of Zibaim, the sons of Ammon, all the Nethanim, the sons of Solomon's servants, were 372. And these were the ones who came up in Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Sherab, Adon, Immer, but they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642, the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillia, sorry, Basilei, who took a wife of the daughters of Basilei, the Gilead, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor sent, said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest should consult with Urim and Thummim. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 700, sorry, 7,337. And they had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, the donkeys 6,720. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave were 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas or minus and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people, the Nethanim and all Israel dwelt in their cities. Let's read one more chapter, and then we'll call it the last verse of this chapter. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on the platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose and beside him, at his right hand stood Metathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And at his left was Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
also Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Adijah, Manasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our God. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and to rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra and the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, that they should announce and proclaim all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring the olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. The word of God. So good to see you guys. So good to have you all join us. Um, for all of you who are uh, flowing in and have engaged with us in this time of reading, you know that what we're here to do is not necessarily engage in a study of Scripture, but more importantly, to engage in the meditation of Scripture. There's a distinction between studying His Word and meditating on His Word. There's a distinction. There's a difference. Those who study his word seek to understand his word with their mind. And yet the scriptures provide enough facility and enough access and enough uh, tools and resource to tantalize even the most intellectual mind. It can be a playground for the intellectual mind. And yet that's not the purpose of the scripture. The scriptures tell us in and of itself that his words are spirit. The word is spiritual, meaning it's not meant to be understood, but it's meant to be captured. It's meant to be caught. It's meant to be revealed, not to be understood. There's a difference between understanding and revelation. Are you hearing me? There's a difference between understanding and revelation. And yet there cannot be revival without revelation getting to my point here where the Lord is leading me today. There cannot be revival without revelation. There must be revelation. Now, the word does have things that we must sit and must be taught to us. It must be taught. And there is an intellectual element to the word, but its priority is to be a spiritual conduit, a spiritual catalyst a means by which we get to know God, to know his will, and to know his heart. That's the whole purpose of the scripture. That's the whole purpose of the word, is to know God and to know his heart. Because at the root, salvation is knowing God. That is what we 
study and we read in the book of Romans that salvation is not knowing the Bible. Salvation is knowing God. The Bible is the means by which we get to know God. So therefore, we can sometimes, you know, and this is going to sound really dangerous, especially for those of us who take the scriptures very seriously, but we can idolize scripture. We can have an idolatry of scripture and engage in these intellectual discussions and theological debates and yet not know God. That's why there are great scriptural intellectuals, theologians, who have professed that they do not believe in God. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's a, a pandemic today. There's a pandemic today. I think I, I need to share this and say this. Uh, there is a pandemic. Yes, there's a pandemic. And yes, there is the pandemic you know, that we know, the coronavirus, but there's a, there's another pandemic, but this pandemic is in the church. It's, it's the pandemic of what I would call pharisaical atheism. Yes. Uh, atheistic Pharisees call them Christian atheists. They know a lot of Bible and yet Christ is not in them. They know a lot of scripture. They studied it. They know church. They know church really well, but they've attached their faith to some form of idolatry, be it politics, be it institution, be it club, be it somebody you like, be it personality. And so they believe in the Bible in as much as it is congruent to their life. It's idolatry. They don't actually know God. They just know Bible. That is the unfortunate reality, family is that for many of us, we know Bible, but we don't know God. And yet the Bible is the means by which we know God. I'll say that one more time. There are many of us here, right? Many Christians who know Bible, but don't know God, who know Bible, but don't know Christ, not realizing that knowing Bible does not necessarily mean that you know Christ. The Bible and God is not synonymous. The Bible is the means by which we get to know God. That is how now it informs our posture with how we read the scripture. We don't read the scripture to simply know it and to be okay and walking away with knowing it. We read the scriptures so that we can get to know who God is, know his heart, know his mission, and know what he intends for his people. Are you catching me, fam? Are you catching me? This is critically important because there have been many revivals in the church, many movements in the church, many movements that have come from personalities, many movements that have come from great preachers, many movements that have come from great teachers, many movements have been theological and not spiritual. And this is why we need a certain level and understanding. Sorry, and 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 and, and discernment. Sorry, I said understanding. Understanding and discernment about uh, understanding and discernment concerning what we see or what looks like a revival. A revival, man. I'm ranting. Y'all know this is the read and rant, so y'all just gonna have to let me rant for a minute. Okay. A revival is not an emotional movement. A revival isn't simply a cultural movement. A revival is a move of God. It is an awakening. It is an illumination. It is a discovery. It is an opening of the eyes and an opening of the heart and an opening of the mind. It is transformation. Revivals will not be exhibited by simply great big worship services where people have their hands lifted up and everybody's bouncing up and down and twirling around in circles. That's not a great revival is when a whole nation of people come together in discovery of who God is and who they are in him. And they begin to move in their own spheres of influence to bring the grace and the love and the heart of Jesus. That is revival. That's what real revival, that's what true revival looks like. True revival looks like when people move 
<laughs> That's what real revival looks like. Not when people gather. Revival is when people leave. Revival is when people move. Revival is when people move in the power of God. Revival is when people discover, oh, wait, wait, well, hold up, hold up, hold up. Jesus is actually in me. God is in me. I carry the power and the presence of God. And because I carry the power in the presence of God, God is calling me to go out and to be Jesus where I am, to be Jesus. You know, real revival is going to be when people don't feel like they need to go to church to experience God, but to have a conviction within their own heart to say, no, 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 I'm going to be the revelation of Jesus where I go, that people will experience Jesus through me. That's what real revival looks like. Real revival will not be exhibited by people who gather in big services. Real revival is going to be exhibited when people scatter into the cities and into the homes and into the broken places. That's what real revival will look like. You guys might not have been here, uh, um, what was it, last week? Yeah, last week when I was on a mini rant because we couldn't do a read and rant. But I use the example of the salt shaker. If you remember, the scriptures tell us that we are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. I have never seen salt remain in a salt shaker and be tasteful. And the problem is that if we're the salt of the earth, what salt ought to do is salt ought to spread and salt ought to scatter. And yet what salt does is today it gathers. Nobody eats from the salt shaker. No, the salt spreads over everything else and brings glory and flavor to it and preservation to it. No, that's not what we do. We just go to church on Sunday. And so we've got a nation full of salt shakers all around. And we wonder why people have a bad taste in their mouth when they think about Christianity and they think about Christians. We actually have to move. A move of God is when God's people move. A move of God is not waiting for a spiritual shaking in the people. A move of God is when God moves. That's right. When God moves. So when you move, he moves. And when you know that, then you become a move of God. That's it. Are y'all catching me, family? Why am I going on this rant? I'm always on a rant, but this is where I told you as I'm reading, I'm simply being inspired in my time of reading about what God is speaking into. And yet what we see here is we're seeing an instigation of revival. We're seeing that. We're seeing a remnant of revival here. We're seeing that in this particular portion of text because what's happening now is that the, the, the people of God, they've now, um, they begin to repair the roads. They've begun to repair the public spaces. They have public squares now. You guys have been reading, right? We've been reading through Nehemiah, so you were here yesterday. And so we've been, we, we see that they've been doing reparation to the public squares and the public spaces and the different gates and all these different regions in the public squares. And now homes are beginning to be rebuilt and restored. And then the walls are built. You see, back in those days when walls were built, that simply, that was, that was what it meant for a city to be established, is for a wall to be built. If there were no walls, it wouldn't be even considered a city. But once the wall was built, it was considered a city. Once it had a fortification that surrounded it, it was considered to be an actual jurisdiction. And so now Jerusalem's walls have been built. So the temple has been built. The public squares have been built. And now the walls have been built. And now after the walls have been built, look at what happens next. What happens next now is we, I mean, we see the census of all the captains who returned. That was just kind of a report of everybody who just came back. But then when we see that the walls have been built, look, 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 look what it says. It says that now Nehemiah, and, and at the end of chapter seven, Nehemiah, the seventh month came, the last verse of, of chapter seven, the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And then afterwards, 
the beginning of chapter eight, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was at the the front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. They built the structures. They began to build the public squares. The homes hadn't been fully restored yet because we see in the story that the homes are being rebuilt. The homes are being restored. This place is in shambles and it's getting rep it's being repaired. But then the people gathered together and Ezra in verse five, opened the book in the sight of the people. And there he stood above all of them. And Ezra began to read. And he read, and he read, and he read, and he read. And then as he read, notice the response of the people. The people responded and they shouted, Amen. And while lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. All of a sudden now, we've built the city, but we need a word. And now Ezra begins to read the word. And as he begins to read the word, there's a spiritual response that comes out of the reading of the word. He reads the law. And then after he reads the law, the people are moved. And after the people are moved, then the Levites come in and begin to teach and to instruct about what the law is speaking into. So now you've got Nehemiah who is governing the city, the institution of the city. You have Ezra who serves as a priest, a, a spiritual mediator. And then notice in verse nine, it says that the Levites had taught the people and they began to instruct them about what the scriptures say. But notice what it says. He said, they say to the people now, as they're teaching them, that this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Notice the same law that made people weep was the same law that they were called to rejoice in. I don't have time. Whew. Did y'all catch that? The same law that was given to them, where we've been reading, if you've been journeying with us, you've seen it. We've seen in, in, in Second Kings, and we've seen in First Kings, when kings opened the law and they read. And as they read, the people began to weep. The king would weep, and then they would mourn because they had spent time away. They disobeyed the law. We see perpetual disobedience of the law. And so they wept because they see how the children have seen and have juxtaposed the reality of their lifestyle to the one in which God had intended for them. And because they deviated away from that, the, ex the, the law then exposed their brokenness, exposed their sin, exposed their deviation from God's will, and their response to it was weeping. But here now, they're being reintroduced to the law. The city's being built, the community's being restored, and they're being reintroduced to the law, but they're being instructed. This is not the time to weep, but this is the time to rejoice. <sighs> this is the time to rejoice. I feel compelled with the few minutes that I have left because I don't have much time. Because I know y'all got places to go. You guys have people to see. You guys have stuff to do. But for a long time, people have run from text, from the text, from scripture, from the Bible, from God's word, because what has been imposed upon them is the judgment of God and the justice of God. And what they have been exposed to is their nature and their deviation from the will of God. That there are people who have been broken by church and by what the church has said, by what the church has taught, and by what the church has imposed upon them. That they opened this book and they had exposed to them their sin, their, their, their deviation from God's will, their wretchedness, their brokenness. And so they read it and it was brought to them and it was pushed on them. And then 
once it was pushed on them, they were then um, abused spiritually. There's a whole bunch of you here who you know exactly what I'm talking about, where you grew up in a church where people threw Bible at you. They threw it all out of context. They never even actually used it, right? But they threw it all out of context and they imposed judgment on you. And so now when you think of the Bible, what you think about is judgment. When you think of the Bible, what you think about is condemnation. And there are those of you who quickly want to dismiss scripture because if I can just dismiss the scripture, then I can at least be okay with what had actually happened. I can reconcile with the pain and the suffering and the strife and all the things that I experienced when I was broken in the church that I grew up in. I saw all the abuse and you've credited all that abuse with the actual misuse of the scripture, the misinterpretation of the scripture, and it has imposed this dimension of pain and brokenness on you. And as a result of that, your response to it is, is it can't be real. This all has to be lies because it does not align with the reality of my life. So the way that you reconcile that is you simply say, it ain't real. It's a bunch of fairy tales. It's fake. I'm moving on. Not realizing that simply dismissing the power of what this says does not lead you to healing. It does not lead you to breakthrough. It doesn't lead you to revelation. It simply leaves you in a place of anger and brokenness because you are left in a holding pattern. There are many Christians who are left in a holding pattern. The Bible was used as a weapon against them. The Bible was used as a means by which to oppress them. There are those who've been abused by the misuse of scripture. And for you, your best argument against all of it to reconcile what had actually happened to you is just for you to say that none of it is real. Because if you can dismiss the reality of the scripture and what the scripture is actually saying, then maybe you can find reconciliation and maybe you can find healing. Here's the unfortunate reality. You walk away from the scripture simply dismissing what had happened to you, justifying what had happened to you based off of the pain that you experienced. And by walking away, you leave angry and bitter. And at the end of the day, you don't actually find healing because it wasn't the word that was the problem. It was the person who was using the word that was the problem. You can dismiss the word doesn't take away from the fact of what the word is. And what I find is, family, is that most people, they're looking for ways to discredit the word in order to make sense and reconcile their pain. So they tell you a bunch of facts that aren't facts. They give you fake news. They tell you that the Bible isn't real. They tell you that it's a bunch of fairy tales. They tell you that none of it's real. When the academic community believes otherwise, even those who are atheists believe otherwise, and yet it's the ones who are actually hurt by the church who make up the lies in their mind about what the Bible is and what the Bible has done and what the word is because, again, they're trying to make sense of all the abuse that they've experienced, that actually might be you. You might have actually experienced abuse from your church because of the misuse of the Bible. And in doing so, you leave not really reconciling the brokenness and the pain and what you have experienced. Instead of creating fake news to make sense of your pain, return back to the truth and the reality of what had actually happened, what actually transpired, what actually, what, what actually happened in that season in your life. Because there are those of us who, when we experience the word, it left us weeping and mourning. But when you actually read the totality of the word, let me say that one more time. There are those of you who have experienced the abuse of the word. It's left you in pain. It's left you in condemnation. It's left you in guilt. And you've experienced the pain of the word. But that was because all you read was part of the word. The only part that was given to you to inflict pain on you. But when you actually read the totality of the word, the full thing, your response is different because now you begin to realize what was said to me isn't it. 
There's more to it than that. If you have been hurt by any church or any person by the misuse of word, I want to invite you to simply read through the whole Bible for yourself and make your own determination and realize that most of what was taught was not actually true. Most of us, the reason why we've experienced pain from our churches and pain from the word is because we only read part of the word. Most of us, the reason why we're in pain from the word is because we only read part of it. But when you read all of it, all of it in its totality, it leaves you with so much joy and peace to encounter and to experience and to know the profundity of the grace of God. Stop reading part of it. Read the whole thing. Stop reading part of the story. Read the whole thing. Since when, y'all? Since when did you go to a movie and watch the middle to, I don't know, five minutes of it? You walk into the middle of, since when? Right? Since when? Since when did you walk into the middle of a movie and watch five minutes of it and leave and say, this is what the movie was all about and I hate it? Since when? And yet that's what we do with the Bible. We read these little snippets here and here and here and here. We don't read the whole story. We just read the little snippets and then we formulate our entire opinion and our entire life on the snippet on the cut. And if you get to the wrong part of the cut, man, it's going to leave you in a lot of pain. And yet that's what most of us have done. And most of us have said the word is this because we only read part of it. Here's an advice. Read all of it. Like read the whole thing, then make your determination. And I promise you, you're going to get a whole different perspective, a whole different perspective. The most life-changing thing that you can do is to read the whole thing. I'm talking to everybody in here. I don't care if you even understand all of it. You can only understand part of it. That was even the, that was our vision for the reading rant. My vision was, is I realized the difference between me and most people is that I engage regularly in reading the whole thing. And even in the early part of my faith walk, I understood maybe 10% of what I read. I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. I understood about 10% of what I read, but you know what I did though? I just kept reading. I kept reading. I read through the whole thing. And I remember the first time I read through the whole Bible, I went, okay, there's some Jesus in there. That was nice. There's some, there's some stuff that's really confusing. I don't get this. And guess what I did again? I went back to the beginning and read it through all the way again. And then I went back to the beginning and read it through all the way again. And I just kept reading it, even when I only understood 10%. And then I read through it all the way again. And then I started understanding 20%. And I read through it all the way over again. And I started understanding 30%. And then I read through it all the way. And then all of a sudden, it just, boom. It just all started to connect because I began to see the heart of God and all of a sudden, guess what? The Holy Spirit begins to speak to you about why this is in here and why that's there. This is a relationship that God has with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And so he starts revealing to you all these different things and it all starts to come together. And all of a sudden, you begin to experience the profound outpouring of God's love. And let me tell you something, it changes your life changes your life. I'm going to give you a confession as a pastor. I remember reading Leviticus and I remember doing a few Bible studies on Leviticus and I remember as a young pastor saying, oh, this book sucks. It's pointless. I don't get why it's there. It's just a horrible book. I hate it. I hate this book, but I'm just going to teach it anyway because I hate it. And I didn't realize at the time, and this is just in my immaturity in ministry, that I just did not know the heart of God. And I remember 
the the day that I read through Leviticus, as I was reading through the entire Bible, as I was reading through the entire Bible, and I read Leviticus, and then I got what Leviticus was all about. And I went, oh my goodness. And I remember just weeping and weeping, saying, Lord, first of all, forgive me for misinterpreting what you were saying in this text. And God, thank you for what you revealed in this text. Because Leviticus was not about a bunch of rules that we ought to follow. Leviticus was about the contingency plan that God had for people who won't follow his rules. That what he did was he prepared a sacrifice. Let me say that one more time. Because some of you didn't read the reading read for Leviticus. Leviticus is not what you think it is. It's not a bunch of rules that we ought to follow. Leviticus is actually about a law that is a contingency plan for a bunch of people who won't follow the rules. It was about the atonement that every time you break the rules, you can engage in a sacrifice that would bring you back into the presence of God. That's what Leviticus is all about. We all read it wrong because we read it like a book of rules. But when you really read it and read it carefully and read it for what it says, you begin to realize Leviticus was about how God created a contingency for people who cannot and will not follow the law and that he gave a sacrifice. And it was a foreshadow of a sacrifice that was to come, that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we need not follow the law to get into the presence of God. We have a sacrifice now that brings us into the presence of God, that now we have access to God through Jesus Christ, not by our ability or our obedience to God's law. That's what Leviticus is all about. And when you realize that all, all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, and you just fall to your face and you weep because you're thankful for how much God loves you that even though he, even though he knew you would mess up, he still says, I'm going to give you a way back to me because I'm more concerned with being in relationship with you than being right. <sighs> and yet these Levites tell the children to read the same thing. But this time when you read it, read it with a joy. Read it with joy. The same thing that made other people weep, God's going to reveal to you that it's meant to bring you joy. And then they began to teach in verse eight. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God and they gave sense and helped them to understand the reading because the response to God's word should not be shame, condemnation, and guilt. The response to the word of God should be joy. It should be joy. It should be, God, you are that good. God, you are that good. You love me this much. You've put my name, you put your name on me. You, you, you want me. You want me, Lord. And for that, I'm thankful. If only we'd be in our relationships in the way that God is with us. If only we would be in marriage the way that God wants to be in relationship with us. We're so busy trying to be right, like right about everything. And we argue about who's right and who's wrong. But didn't Jesus who knew no sin become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God? Didn't Jesus give up his rightness in order to make us righteous in him? God was more concerned with being in relationship with us than being right. And he took on our own sin and our own corruption, put it upon himself and died on the cross in order for us to be in relationship again with God. Too busy being right, but can we sacrifice ourselves and say relationship is more important than being right? That's what it means to live a life informed by the gospel. And yet I read this and I see the law of God and the law of God exposes the righteousness of God. 
And yet, in exposing the righteousness of God, what he's informing them is that, in verse 9, this day is a holy day to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law, but you know, read it with the joy. So today, I would encourage you to read the word with joy, to read it with gladness. Watch this, read it with joy, read it with gladness, but this time, read all of it. Read all of it, not some of it. Read all of it, all of it. And when you read all of it, then you'll find the joy that comes from the word. Father, I ask today, Lord, that there are those of us right now, Lord, who've been burdened by this word, that have been hurt by this word, that have been um, abused by this word, uh, the part of the word that was exposed to them. Father, I pray right now, Lord, that you would expose your people to the totality of your word. Lord, that they would experience the fullness of your word, all of your word, not just part of it, but all of it. Father, I thank you that you brought this entire group together for the read and rant for this particular thing, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, that there are those who have been engaging with us from the beginning and have journeyed with us through all of this and have experienced that this thing is not what they thought it was and that there's so much more to the word of God. Father, I thank you that you're transforming lives even today simply because you're exposing people to the totality of your word. Thank you, Lord. Lord, that you're bringing revival. Thank you, Lord, that you're bringing revelation to your people. Lord, that there would be a move of God in your people by simply the revelation of your word, the full revelation of your word. So, Father, continue to reveal yourself. Continue to reveal your heart. Lord, as we continue to engage in your word. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.